0: <laughs>
1: so, although, then again, this, this book isn't exactly, uh, I don't know, it doesn't exactly speak well of Zeus, not much of a reason to pray to it.
0: No, well, that's a good point. It doesn't speak well of Zeus, it doesn't speak well of the gods in general, um, who, are, who, who get angry and upset and into um, the fighting, but for whom it's still a game. And it's not a game where they don't understand what the stakes are for humans. It's it's a little bit like um, that moment in um, Independence Day when the humans ask the aliens, "What do you want us to do?" And the aliens respond, "Die." Um, <laughs> it's it's that what they they really do like seeing humans die in very large numbers, um, but they don't like them for the same reason that the humans like to see each other die. That is. Um, humans, um, when they kill each other, um, there's a really passionate, um, intensity and intention in the way they kill each other. They kill each other out of anger, and they kill each other, um, in a way to punish each other, um, which has the odd, um, and important effect of acknowledging Um, the importance that they have towards each other. In other words, you risk your life as a warrior to kill a Trojan or to kill an Achaean. And the very fact that you're willing to risk your life to do so um, basically shows how much that person matters to you. It may be a negative and awful way to matter, which is to want them dead, Um, but if you're willing to risk your life to kill someone, to go into battle and maybe get killed yourself in order to kill them, um, there's a sense in which you are making them as important a person in your life, at least at that moment, as anyone can be. Um, And Homer really recognizes that. That's a feature of anger. That you are willing to give stuff up um, out of anger. That's what Achilles does. You're willing to give stuff up out of anger. The most important things in the world, you're willing to give up out of anger because you are so full of rage at someone. But if you're that full of rage, they really matter to you. You're not indifferent to them. The gods don't feel that way. Um, yeah, what were you going to say? Sorry. So I
2: have a question. This just came over in my reading now um, about I think this
0: is the first time I came across it on one ninety nine. It might just be a translation, but it says um, line forty nine. for it was with God that we made our way hither. Yes. Um, um, I'm sorry. What line is that? Just forty nine. Um. Yeah. For it was with God that we made our way um, I'm just hither. Wondering about the capitalized symbol. Yeah. So sometimes um, they. Um, God will simply refer to Zeus as. as um, Blue booty. Oh, white words. <laughs> as Zeus is the king of the gods. Um, it's not quite monotheistic, but it means um, with, um, with the very idea of divinity on our sides on our side. Um, one of the things we talked about, so I'll just, I'll just say this again because it, um, um, it's helpful to know, again, that these kinds of distinctions are possible, is that Zeus, Jupiter, Ammon, um, and various other kings of the gods or versions of the deity where um, who is the head or king of the gods, um, all of those are combined in the idea of Zeus. Um, but they're also sometimes separated. That is to say, sometimes Zeus will be called, um, um, will have, will have um, some epithets and sometimes others. And um, often those epithets, that is the, the, um, the kind of Zeus we're talking about, Zeus of the ages, or Zeus um, the lover of heralds, or Zeus the king of the gods, and so on, sometimes actually those three different descriptions of Zeus will have the effect of reminding the audience <coughs> of one or another origin um, or one or another genealogy of Zeus. Um, and sometimes what you'll get is um, Zeus who likes having sex with Hera and who's easily fooled Um, and that'll come from one uh, mythological background. Sometimes you'll get a version of Zeus who is is all-knowing and all-wise and all-seeing and who can't be fooled and that comes from another mythological background and usually these things combine fairly readily Um, because we're not thinking of these different aspects of him but just in the same way as in the Bible and I just assume that the the biblical stories are more familiar to people in the same way as in the Bible um, you sometimes get the Lord who walks in the garden in the cool of the day and you sometimes get God who has never been seen by any human being Um, those are not those don't feel to us like contradictions Um, what they refer to are different, we will often say, different attributes or aspects or manifestations of God. And we will say there is this this general concept, God, who will sometimes be the Lord, who at one point in the Bible, um, you know, if this were a full year course as it once was, we'd be looking at this. But again, just just to show you analogs, there's a place in Exodus where the Lord attempts to kill Moses and fails. Um, that is Moses goes to an inn and the Lord is lying in wait for him in ambush and tries to kill him and fails Um, and kind of shrugs it off and then Moses' wife says "Um, I can't believe you got into a fight with the Lord, you jerk I can't believe I'm married to you how can you have the Lord as your enemy Um, so what does that mean? Well, a lot. there's a lot of interpretation as to what it means. But as a pure, simple mythological story, it's not unlike Diomedes fighting against Aphrodite. That is, it's um, a, a story about a god, um, or a version of god, um, who is the least all-powerful, but still extremely scary version um, that you'll find in, um, in the Bible. Um, or when Jacob wrestles with the with with the figure whom he tells his brother is God, um, you again have a non-all-powerful version, very powerful but certainly not omnipotent version of God. On the other hand, the God that created heaven and earth is a lot more omnipotent than the God um, whom whom Moses um, uh, survives the attack. Do people, people remember this in, in Exodus? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it, the, it, it, it's a kind of thing where you're reading it and you're thinking, not only do I not understand this, but it's short and I don't really have time to understand this at this point. But what Exodus says is, and the Lord, or Yahweh, sought to kill Moses. Um, and um, then Moses went to his wife and she said, what bloody man art thou? Um, and he kind of apologizes, and then he and the Lord get to be on better terms again. Um, and it's a huge, huge puzzle for people. Um, again, you have God created, created man and woman, and then he creates um, Adam and Eve. Um, there are lots of different stories that get combined. And sometimes those combinations are, um, are, are uneasy with each other. We're used to it in biblical reading. And we don't, we don't really worry about it in biblical reading. Another thing you should know is um, that the, if, you, if you know any Hebrew, you probably know that the word Elohim is plural. Um, that is the word for, that's translated into English as God, singular. Um, is in Hebrew a plural <coughs> word? What it means is gods. Um, and however, it almost always takes a singular verb in the Bible. So it's God's says you have to do this, and God's requires that you do that. Yeah.
1: Actually, that seems really interesting, considering that one of the major parts of um, of the Shema is uh, the Lord is one. Yes. God's is one.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, And but it's the Lord is one precisely in the Mm -hmm. Shema, rather than God's. Um, And the question of, of the gods as plural, it's plural usually, but not always, with a singular verb. And a famous place where it doesn't have a singular verb is at the very beginning of Genesis, where the way it's translated into English, and God said, but it's really God's said, let us make man in our own image. Um, so he made man in his own image, um, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. But what God says is let us, not let me, but let us make man in our own image. And again, if you're reading it, you say, oh yeah, he's using that royal we, whatever. Um, but he doesn't use the royal we. He does, it's not vengeance is ours said the Lord, we shall repay. Its vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. Usually God uses a singular pronoun about himself, or the Lord uses a singular pronoun about himself. But there at the very start, it's the gods are saying, let us make man in our own image. Uh, I'm only pointing this out in order to point out that we have the same, the question that you're asking, we have the same question. Um, or we could raise the same questions about very familiar um, religious texts that we're aware of. Um, but we don't. We manage to absorb different ways of talking about the same thing and to, um, when talking about divinity, to think about um, divinity as, um, in, as having a whole lot of different figurative um, or metaphorical, or um, or or simply um, uh, uh, conventional ways of describing those things. And one lesson that we tend to learn is that you can never. I think one lesson that you tend to learn is that you should never be too quickly to rel- too quick to rely on an absolute r- literal understanding. Um, Of what's going on. If the Lord seeks to kill Moses, um, what you may say to yourself is um, something else is going on there. That might be a place, for example where Moses is, in fact, put to some sort of test rather than the Lord trying but failing to kill him. And I think that would be the standard way of understanding that. If the Lord says to Moses, to give another example of Pharaoh, I am very sure that he will not let you go, you don't say to yourself, wait, he doesn't know? He's just guessing that Pharaoh isn't going to let the children of Israel go? well, literally, yeah, he is just guessing. He says, I'm very sure. And when you're very sure about something, it means that you're not actually all that sure about it. Um, very sure is is one of those very's that weakens the very thing it's supposed to be strengthening, like when O.J. Simpson um, pled um, absolutely, positively, 100% not guilty. Um, well, OK, <laughs> we didn't know he was just not guilty, but he's totally and completely not guilty. Um, so, but all those things we're really familiar with in, in um, the religious discourse that is still live in our culture. Um, we just don't worry about it. So just make that application to Homer and his audience, that they're also not worrying about it. Ilona, then Julian.
3: The thing is, I understand, like, um, the context of why we talked about the Bible, but just like, I remember um, in Bible class discussing that first, uh, you know, and God said, create man in our image. Uh, my teacher interpreted it as um, you know she didn't she quoted other people who did that um, who was God talking to when he yeah. said so he was talking to the angels and he mm-hmm. was like we'll create them yeah. in our image
0: yes yeah so
3: that's just one of the ways they mitigated
0: okay so yeah no there are many ways to mitigate it and the idea of angels the word angel means messenger and the the um, it's a Greek word meaning me- messenger um, and. Um, the he, it's a translation by the, um, by the 70 of a Hebrew word that also originally means messenger. Um, the idea that the angels are hanging around God and that God is talking to them, you'll see this in Milton. In Milton, he solves the problem in the same way, which is that the angels are often called gods in Paradise Lost, but they're small g-gods. And, the, and that's Milton's understanding as well. But notice that what happens is, we talked about this before, when you have a contradiction in a text that is supposed to be telling the truth, what you do is you tell a story that resolves the contradiction. Um, that is, you add a story to it, and sometimes those stories are themselves codified as um, midrash or as Mishnah or as or as some other um, set of um, of almost as holy documents. Um, but they're added stories which reconcile what look like irreconcilable problems. It's like the explanation of a mystery but he died in a locked room and he was hanging from the ceiling and no one could have gotten in and killed him. How can this be? Well here's the story. Here's one way that it might have happened. Um, so an added story the only, you know, when, when um, Sherlock Holmes famously says once you get rid of the impossible um, then whatever is left however improbable it is, is the answer. Um, since it is impossible that there were other gods along with God, if you believe the Shema, if you believe um, the central tenets of, um, of the religion, then however improbable it is that God was hanging out with angels who are never mentioned in Genesis, you may think they are, but they're not, um, however improbable That is, that must be the truth. So what biblical exegetes, I can't believe we're talking about Genesis, but I'll just give you one more example. Um, There's a moment later on in Genesis, where, um, which begins, Abraham looked up and saw God. And three men came to him. um, And um, he gave them food and drink. And they sat under a tree. And they said, because you've done this for us, um, we'll now tell you something really interesting, which is Sarah will have a child. Um, or Sarai will have a child, and she laughs. Um, She she overhears this and laughs. Um, So what the biblical exegetes say is, oh, he looked up and saw God, it says, and it turns out that God is three men who are there and who talk to him, And really what this must mean is these people who predict the future and who bless him and tell him what will happen are angels. And as angels, they represent God so that we say that he saw God, but he actually saw God's representatives. So here again, as in the story of Jacob wrestling the man, there's an interesting splitting of the difference between a man and God in the guise of the idea of an angel that when humans see God, say they see God, usually they're seeing angels who represent God, even if those things are described as men. And so you solve one contradiction by introducing two or three more and saying, it's all a metaphor and it all makes sense, if you understand it metaphorically. Um, Julian, and, I'm sorry, remind me. Emily? Emily, yeah.
3: Um, just uh, to respond to um, what we are discussing a few minutes ago about um, Elohim, God being plural as gods, um, one way that... Uh, make sense for me to look at it, it was also to, to see that idea as similar to the idea of infinity infinity is, is an endless number it's, mm-hmm. it's it's you know whatever uh, um, you know it, it, it's beyond it's beyond our capacity to, 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 to fathom it and so the same idea with, with God is here and that you have a God that you can't fathom it's beyond our imagination so it's not that 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 that's many gods it's just one God that encompasses so much that it's universal mm-hmm. um, but also one other point uh, to, to reinforce that is that whenever in the text there are there are examples where you have God's name twice in a row <coughs> so in the, the primary text the, in the Bible, but also in um, as you mentioned you referred to it as, the, as almost as holy text as the mission or, or the other parts of the, of, of the extended Bible um, when there are when there are God's names uh, side by side the, always the way to refer to the second one when there is two is, is Adonai which, which directly translates to my master mm-hmm. so I've, my lord my lord right yeah. Um, but it's always kind of a reference to, you know, where you stand, or where I stand, rather, yeah. in reference to, to God. Nice, exactly. So, so it's always the idea of, yes, you know, it could be this all-encompassing God, it could be this, you know, the royal we, or or, or just, or, you know, there might be some contradictions there, but the idea is it's how we serve, Yeah. Um, or how we obey.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, but all this requires interpretation, right. and the interpretation is added storytelling which you assume must be true because it's the only story that can make that can make what look like contradictions make sense. So you just that's a good story. The story about infinity. The story about um, uh, um, about point of view. Um, Homer has the same or relies on the same um, um, absorption of contradiction into um, for into culture. What culture is is the balancing of contradiction. Emily.
2: Like a lot of these contradictions, there's um, a lot of History Channel special. It's, it's, like, ridiculous. It's the Ancient Alien series. but They point out a lot of these things and try and, it's just another way of, like, interpreting the different contradictions and who is, who is it that Abraham's actually seeing. It.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: interesting to think about what is it that they actually saw
0: that was written down later as God. Right. So, again, and there what you have are, so you tell science fiction stories right. to explain what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, that the very idea of of um, looking for um, well, I mean, what everyone is doing is looking for the origins of contradictions. Um, historians, archaeologists, mythographers, everyone looks for the for the ori- for where these contradictions come from. And the historical story or the archaeological story is: these are originally separate gods who um, syncretically get mixed and matched. Um, and those things happen. That's, that's a common thing to happen. Um, and we've seen it happen. Um, we've seen it happen recently, for example. Um, to give a good example, there's a book by Mick Tausig, called, um, the, has the wonderful title, The Devil in Commodity Fetishism. Um, don't you just want to go out and read it? <laughs> um, but what the devil and commodity fetishism is about are Bolivian tin miners and the way they combined indigenous religion and belief. Um, these are, these are um, um, Indian tin miners on the whole. The way they combined indigenous belief with um, Catholic doctrine that was imposed upon them. Um, and so they actually, Tausig is very interested in the way they actually pray to the devil to allow them to get more tin out, because the Catholic Church said, your God is a devil. And they said, mm-hmm. okay, so how do you pray to the devil then? Um, or voodoo is another example of that, which combines African belief with Christianity in Haiti, um, uh, beliefs that come from Yoruba on backgrounds, for example, with, um, with Christianity. And it's not that they say, oh, no, our gods are wrong. Your gods are right. It's they say, oh, we get it. Um, Legba is really. Um, and um, 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 Erzuli, for example, who's a, who's a huge figure in voodoo um, and who is originally an African figure, is connected to the Virgin Mary. Um, and in voodoo they are they're, they're regarded as the same figure. So we can actually see in historical times, in, we can see documented the way completely different religions and traditions and beliefs and myths that come from completely different places can combine um, fairly well. Um, but there are always little gaps which then have to be filled in with further stories. And it's, that's where new stories come from. Yeah?
1: Oh, yeah, I was just going to bring up another example. Um, the Irish story of Tam Lin just combines Christian mythology and Celtic mythology. Yeah, yeah. Um, saying, oh, well, hmm, we have the devil and we have God, but we also have the fairies. So how do the fairies work in all this? Oh, the fairies are in ties with Satan.
0: Right, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, Harry Potter's all Satanist, um, <laughs> as we know. All right, let us, um, let's start... Finally <laughs> um, I know most of you haven't haven't gotten to this, but um it's uh I, and we'll get back to the passage we were looking at on Friday, but if you go to page three eleven which is book fifteen um, around well um Around line 48, Zeus starts Zeus is speaking to um Hera. And um he tells her what the future is gonna be. This is about the fourth or fifth time that Homer tells us what's going to happen um in the course of the Iliad. And what he says there is um if you now go to um let's say uh line 58. Also, let Phoebus Apollo stir Hector back into battle. Um, Breathe strength into him once more and make him forget the agonies that now are wearing out his senses. Let him drive strengthless panic into the Achaeans and turn them back once more. Let them be driven in flight and tumble back on the bench ships of Achilleus Peleus' son. And he, that is Achilleus, shall rouse up Patroclus, his companion. And glorious Hector shall cut down Patroclus with the spear before Ilion, after he has killed many others of the young men, and among them my own son, shining Sarpedon, in anger for him, Brilliant Achilleus shall then kill Hector. Um, and from then on, I would make the fighting surge back from the vessels always and continuously until the Achaeans capture headlong Ilion through the designs of Athene. Um, before this, I'm not stopping my anger. And I will not let any other of the immortals stand there by the Danaans until the thing asked by the son of Peleus has been accomplished, as I undertook it at the first and bent my head in assent to it on that day when, embracing my knees, immortal Thetis supplicated honor for Achilleus, Sacker of Cities. Um, So here we get what's going to happen both the climax of the Iliad and what actually happens after the Iliad is over, which is the fall of Troy. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Wait. For the podcast. Oh, it's no, it's I'm doing it on the phone. <laughs> that's that. It's yeah, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's okay, but thank you for asking. Okay, so um, the what we're getting here then is um, a um, both a summary of what's happened and of what will happen. And then also an account of what happens after the Iliad is over. Um, The Iliad is not about the fall of Troy, um, but it's about the death of Hector. And um, after Hector dies, the fall of Troy is inevitable. Hector is the great shield of Troy. And that's been, that's been said from the start. That is, whenever anyone smart talks to Hector, um, they know that he is the defense of Troy, that he is the great hero of Troy, and without him, Troy can't stand that long. Um, the Odyssey then occurs, which we'll read next, occurs after the fall of Troy. Um, we'll read in some detail about the actual fall of Troy as well, um, but um, the two framing stories that we're starting with are before and after the fall. But neither of them is actually about the fall of Troy. Okay, let's go back. Yeah. Um, just one thing. Uh, Zeus mentions that
1: his son Sarpedon is going to have to die. Uh huh. And once he does die, isn't Zeus like terribly? Sad and wants to save him. Yeah, and then is convinced by Hera not to. Work
0: yeah, um, part of what's going on here is, and this is this is um, remember a couple a week and a half ago, I think I asked you to think about whether um, you saw the Eliot as an anti-war or a pro-war poem. Part of what's going on is there's bargaining going on between the gods about human lives. Um, and uh, you may, some of you may know that Hitler and Stalin, um, Hitler tried to bargain with Stalin um, over, I think it was a nephew of Hitler's and, um, a, and a son of Stalin's, um, both of whom had been captured by the other side. That is Hitler's nephew had been captured by the Soviets and Stalin's son had been captured by the Nazis. And um, Hitler said, let's just trade them. You know, this is, there, there's no reason for this. And Stalin basically said, fuck you. Um, and in Russian, um, <laughs> yes. what is it? Yabanti, can you? OK, yeah. In, in, <laughs> thank you. Um, I see you know your history. That's good. <laughs> um, is Russian. Sorry? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but, they, but here, it's, it's Zeus and Hera talking about human lives, um, and taking a kind of Stalinist attitude, which is, um, look what I'm giving you. I'm letting my own son die. That should satisfy you. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's fine then. Um, And how are we to think about that, about literally or almost literally being made um, bargaining chips, um, which is what's going on here. So Zeus is saying, look what a good guy I am. I'm going to let Sarpedon die. And why is it that... Pleasing Achilles is the most important thing for Zeus. I mean, it's not,
1: he's not related to Zeus.
0: Well, A, he is related oh, to, yeah. but B, um, it's because th- the story is told early on that when all the other gods, and here's a question again about the power of Zeus, when all the other gods try to overthrow Zeus, Thetis was the one who warned him and helped him against the overthrow. And so he owes her, and he acknowledges that from the start. And so when she supplicates him early on, he agrees to um, do what she says. And um, so that's the setup for um, for the situation, Emily. I
2: also think that like all this attributing the tide of the like the tide of the war um, to the gods though, is a way of just kind of explaining the senselessness of both death and war. And yeah. Just There's a point where Agamemnon says that, you know, the Trojans are winning right now because Hector sacrifices to the gods better than we do. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's not attributing to the Trojans' skill in warfare, but to the gods, Yeah, you know, liking their sacrifices better. So I think it's just a way to you know, not admit defeat yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, one of the things that happens is there's, at one point, we hear that they sacrificed, in one of the by-stories, they sacrificed to all gods but one, so that god gets very angry. Um, At another place, the question is, why does Athena let, Athena, whom the Trojans hold as very holy, why does she nevertheless let Troy get sacked? Um, Well, it's because she turned her heart against Troy, despite the fact that the Trojans um, think of her um, on the whole. Um, there's a huge cult of Athena in Troy. Why does Zeus let the cities that are sacred to him get sacked? Because he bargains with Hera. So um, the idea is you should pray, and if you and if you don't pray, you're really, really, really um, skating on thin ice. But even if you do pray, the ice may come out um, from below you. Um, for reasons that aren't your fault. But you have to do what you can do, which is pray and sacrifice to the gods. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Um, So it explains both why things go well and why things go badly. Um, It's an all-purpose explanation. Um, If things go well, it's because your prayer was effective. And if things go badly, it's because either you forgot to pray or your prayer was ineffective. Or despite the fact that you prayed, the gods were so angry that it didn't do any good. Yeah?
2: Doesn't it also... um a lot of men are like compelled to do things by the gods, and like with the one um when they finally make a truth, one uh, one of the Trojan men shoots an arrow at mm-hmm. Menelaus, yeah, and it's like oh, it's because this guy the god
0: and, put it in his mind to do so, yeah, yeah, um, and again, it's like the- so look, a lot of people, and this may be more um obvious in the Odyssey than in the Iliad, but a lot of people um, interested in the Iliad and the Odyssey are interested in um, what they can dope out about Homer's theory of human psychology from these books. Um, One thing that Homer is clearly discussing a huge amount is the psychology of anger. Um, That is how, what is anger what does the emotion of anger feel like what um kinds of surprises does anger lead to um what is the nature of anger but that specific question the psychology of anger which i think is as soon as you as soon as you ask is homer thinking about that? the the answer is obviously yes he is um, that specific question can be generalized more into um, Homer and, and his contemporaries' curiosity about what causes people to do things. And one thing is um, Homer's interested in what Poe, um, 3,000 years later, will call the imp of the perverse, when people suddenly, and for no obvious reason at all, do something strange and self-destructive and that maybe they thought they, they didn't want to do. Um, and why does that happen? Why do people suddenly and for no reason do something that they're really not motivated to do? Um, and one answer for, for Poe, the answer is it's the imp of the perverse. Um, but that for Poe is entirely metaphorical. Um, for Homer, it can be the gods put it in their mind. Same, again, is true of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to Moses, let my people, I mean, Pharaoh says to Moses, take your people and get the heck out of here. I don't want to use bad language. Um, Get the heck out of here. Um, And then um, the book of Exodus says, but then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So again, there's a moment of psychology where why does someone go back on an agreement which is win-win? Because out of some, um, some flash of refusal, they decide, wait, no, just like that. Um, that's a fact that Homer and Poe and um, the J writer noticed about human beings, that things seemed fine, and then suddenly, bam, refusal, a flash of, wait a second, no, 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 the deal's off, um, and that flash of refusal, um, How how to explain it. So what Homer is saying is the gods do it, what we could say is the fact that Homer will say the gods sometimes make people do that is a way of showing that he, is a way of noticing that he has seen and noticed this strange psychological feature of human beings, which is the way they suddenly flip from one commitment to its opposite um, under some kind of sudden emotional um, um, break or explosion or snap. Um, so why do people snap? Well, Let's say the gods cause it. Um, yeah.
1: Although, yeah. Although that brings up a further question, more, more in Hebrew mythology than um, than Greek mythology, because in Greek mythology we already know that the gods are kind of dicks. So the question, pretty much, what the hell, God?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That too. Why? Why are the gods exactly? Yeah.
2: So is. I'm sorry. Remind me your name. Erica. Erica. So, um, like some. Like occasionally, a god will influence a fighting, like a fighter in this war, really easily, and like they have very little autonomy. But what does it say about the ones who are easily influenced and the ones who, for instance, like Diomedes goes face to face with Athena and like they have a body dragging between them and she doesn't do anything to just change his spirit? Like, what does that say about like the people who?
0: Yeah, I would say that. So, uh, another way then of looking into um the um, uh, analysis of psychological depth in Homer is the greater the hero um the less they're influenced or or the less you're going to see um them doing what they do because a god made a god made them decide to do that um that is that the more the word uses autonomy, and that's right the um, the greater the figure. The more they're going to be represented as a figure with free will, um, that who does what he or she does um, because it comes out of their own soul, um, and the um, less important the figure, the more they'll just be wheeled in as um, something that'll that'll cause a plot moment to um, to to shift um, because the gods decided yeah do that now plot wise. Um, so, but as I say, you'll see a lot of this. I mean, one thing to look at is the difference between Achilleus and everyone else in the Iliad. Um, And Achilleus is the person who is most inward in his self-analysis. He wants glory, but he also thinks a lot. And his thought takes the form of of um, going inside his mind or inside his soul um, rather than simply behaving the way a glorious person would behave in certain situations. Um, In the Odyssey, it's Odysseus who does this. Odysseus, what you'll see are descriptions Sometimes I've actually taught the Odyssey first before the Iliad and there are advantages and disadvantages to that. But what you'll see over and over again in the Odyssey is that the standard thing Odysseus will do is that he will think about a choice and he will consider within himself which of two possible ways of acting he should undertake. And then having thought about that, he will decide to try way one first, and if way one doesn't work, he can always go to way two. Now, he's devious devising, or he's the man of many wiles. Odysseus is what is known in the trade as a trickster. Um, But one thing that Homer does is he makes Odysseus consider what the best way of handling his options are and to think those ways through over and over again. Generally, in the Iliad, characters don't think things through by themselves. They sometimes take counsel. They sometimes have arguments. But they don't say, should I do X or should I do Y? The advantages of X are such and such, but the advantages of Y are something else. Um, The character who does that most in the Iliad is Achilles. Um, He's the one who most looks into himself and is torn about what to do and then comes to a decision that he's not wholly happy with um, the figure whom, uh, whom Achilles as we've already seen the figure who is most important in the world to Achilles is Patroclus um, and um, the introduction of Patroclus, Patroclus has been introduced and the first time he's introduced he's unhappy with Achilles and with Achilles as sulking, um, he's a character to pay attention to um, but Patroclus after his death his spirit will come to Achilles in a dream Um, And um, the question of what kind of figure the image of Patroclus is, is related to the question, what kind of interiority does Achilles have? Um, I'll just alert you to it. What Patroclus says to Achilles in his dream is, you have forgotten me, he says to Achilles. Um, And now the question is, so. If Patroclus is, in some modern sense, if Homer in some modern sense has the idea of what a dream is, and if what Achilles does is dreams of a person that he is rebuking himself for having forgotten, um, what kind of memory is this that takes the form of guilt for forgetting? It all happens in Achilles' mind it's in his mind that he rebukes himself for having forgotten Patroclos, So that forgetting is itself a kind of memory um, or me- remembering is itself a kind of internal overcoming of forgetfulness and if that's so you have a very surprisingly new and deep conception of what goes on deep within the human mind it's not all on the surface when you're talking about people like Alexandros, that is Paris or even um, Agamemnon or Eos or any of those people what they say what they think and it's always on the surface and they're simply fighting um, for glory but when you're talking about Achilles you're talking about a completely different kind of person um, and it's Homer is interested in going very deep into a figure like Achilles in a way that no one has gone deeply into the human mind before. Now that question, by the way, is going to come up again with Socrates, as you'll see when we look at the Apology. Socrates will claim that he has um, a figure whom he calls a demon, um, and it's where Philip Pullman got the idea. Um, a, f- a figure whom he calls a demon who's always with him and who tells him um, when he's doing wrong um, and sometimes tells him, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do something else. And he says, I learned that I should always listen to, the, to my demon. Um, D-A-E-M-O-N. Um, that's um, interesting to relate to the gods causing people to do things in the Iliad. Um, but it's interesting to relate also to the way Plato, under the influence of Homer, whom he quotes incessantly, um, is also trying to think about human interiority. So these issues of psychological depth, in a way it's Homer who is first thinking um, in the Western tradition about what psychological depth is. Um, Psychological depth means something like not knowing what your own motivations are, whether you want to do something or whether you want to do the opposite, Um, it's Homer who's first thinking about that and Plato is certainly a major inheritor of that and the question whether um, you do something unexpected to yourself because the gods are causing you to do it or because you've thought it through those are alternative explanations and for some characters you'll get one and for some characters you'll get the other okay one more question Emily
2: Yeah. You have Agamemnon and, and Menelaus not sleeping well because they feel guilty, mm-hmm. um, but you don't have that same sense of, I guess in their case they probably attribute it to the gods. Yeah. whereas I guess Homer wouldn't have been able to do
0: that. Yeah, well, so So for example, um, um, Zeus sends a dream to Agamemnon, mm-hmm. um, and there. Um, and when we said before that there's some sense in which you can think of the gods as pro- as human projections, Um, That's one way of saying that, that if Zeus sends a dream to Agamemnon, um, a a modern psychoanalyst would say that's a mythological way of saying that something in Agamemnon is bothering him, and he attributes it to fate, and he attributes his own self-analysis of what's bothering him as a gift of fate, let's say. Um, However, it's a very different way of describing Agamemnon's experience of dreaming. Um, from as you'll see from Achilleus' experience of dreaming. Um, and those are, those are really worth juxtaposing. And they really tell you the difference between Agamemnon and Achilleus, the difference in the way their dreams are described. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good point. Okay, back. I really want, <laughs> want to look at, at this moment. Um, so um, we hear that Achilleus has killed all of Andromache's family. Um, And then um, she says to him, Hector, this is um, book 6, line 429, Hector, thus you are father to me and my honored mother. You are my brother, and you it is who are my young husband. And um, I um, had miscollated where Hector picks that up later. But it's on page 187, which is book 8, line 190, um, his speech starts at line 185. Xanthos. Oh, by the way, did everyone get the um, email about the locked-in love and how that's really not what Homer says? No. Yeah. Okay. So um, on, the, uh, I think you're forced to receive course announcements from Latte, but maybe you just don't. Maybe you just have spam filters on Brandeis email. Um, it's what the Greek says. remember I said I'd look up the Greek. So what the Greek basically says is, um, and they and they um, went to sleep together, where the term "sleep together does not mean what it means in modern English. It's not a euphemism. It really does mean that they lay down together in sleep, not in sex. So the idea that Helen and Par- that Helen is saying, "Oh, you sexy man." Um, I love it when you do me when people are killing each other outside the cities of Troy which is sort of the Fagel's implication that some of you were asking about that's not in the Greek um, Lattimore, is, Lattimore is much more accurate although even he is is kind of hinting as Homer might be expecting you to get that they are having sex it's certainly not the case that Helen is um, a do me feminist at that moment um, and um so, so the Fagel's translation, just trying to get Helen's character right, the Fagel's translation is highly misleading there. Um, OK, so, but the other thing was um, that uh, um, Hector is then talking, at line, this is uh, book 8, line 185, Xanthos and Eupodargos, Aethon and Lampos the Shining, now repay me for all that loving care and abundance and dramachy the daughter of high-hearted Aetion gave you, the sweet-hearted wheat before all the others, and mixed wine with it for you to drink, when her heart inclined to it, as for me, who am proud that I am her young husband. Um, So she did that, and I am proud to be her young husband. So he's picking up, really interestingly, on what she has said to him in book six. And so now she says... Please take pity upon me then. Stay here on the rampart. We're back in book six. Then you may not leave your child an orphan, your wife a widow, but draw your people up by the fig tree, there where the city is openest to attack and where the wall may be mounted. So please stay here and protect the city. Then at line 440, then tall Hector of the Shining Helm answered her, All these things are in my mind also, lady, Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments if, like a coward, I were to shrink aside from the fighting. That is, like a coward like my brother Paris. And the spirit will not let me. So there's an interesting word there, or interesting line, the spirit will not let me. What spirit? Is this a spirit outside of him or within him? In fact, Homer is thinking hard and lots of um, his contemporaries are thinking hard about um, what it means to be spirited to have a spirit within you. Um, does Is it you or is it not you? When um, you flash into emotion, is that a deep fact about what and who you're really like and really are or is it something outside of you that inspires you. It's a question that comes up with the muses also. As you know, epic poets, we talked about this the first day of class, pray to the muse for inspiration. And what inspiration means is putting the spirit within you. Um, putting The word spirit itself means breath. That's not the word that um, Hector is using here. But what a muse does is breathes into you words that you then speak. And for Homer, it's as though those come from a god, the muse, anger, sing, goddess. For Hector, it may not be quite so clear whether he owns the spirit within him or whether it owns him. But he goes on, um, uh, the spirit will not let me, since I have learned to be valiant and to fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans, winning for my own self great glory and for my father. For I know this thing well in my heart, and my mind knows it. So both my heart and my mind know it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish, and Priam, and the people of Priam, of the strong ash spear. But it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, not even of Priam the king, nor Hecuba, that is his mother. Um, If you know Hamlet, what's Hecuba to him or he to her, that he should weep for her? Um, When the player king, I mean, when the player rehearses the fall of Troy, he tells a speech about the fall of Troy Mm -hmm. in Hamlet, and then he starts weeping over Hecuba, um, and Hamlet can't believe it, what's Hecuba to him or he to her that he should weep for her. so it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, not even of Priam, the king, nor Hecabe, nor the thought of my brothers, who in their numbers and valor shall drop in the dust under the hands of men who hate them, as troubles me the thought of you when some bronze armored Achaean leads you off, taking away your day of liberty in tears. And in Argos, you must work at the loom of another and carry water from the spring, Messias or Hyperia, all unwilling, but strong will be the necessity upon you. And someday seeing you shedding tears, a man will say of you, this is the wife of Hector, who is ever the bravest fighter of the Trojans, breakers of horses. Hang on to that line. In fact, um, not only hang on to it, but look at the very, very um, end of the Iliad, the last line of which, since now you know what's going to happen, is, such was their burial of Hector breaker of horses. So here Hector is anticipating the very last line of the poem. Um, that is people will talk about you as the wife of Hector, the bravest fighter of the Trojans, breakers of horses. Um, and the end of the Iliad goes back to that. In the days when they th- when they fought about Ilion, so one will speak of you and for y- you it will be yet a fresh grief to be widowed of such a man who could fight off the day of your slavery but may I be dead, and the piled earth hide me, before I hear you crying and know by this that they drag you a captive. That they drag you captive. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was noticing something that I, I thought it was kind of odd, you know, um, because they refer to Diomedes later on as also as the breaker.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it would, do you think they're trying to draw a connection there? Or just so happens that these are two separate men who are both breaker of forces.
0: Um. There's, there's a somewhat complex answer to that, which I actually want to get to in a little while. Okay. Um, but I think Homer is aware of that. That is that the, um, what are called epithets, that is, standard descriptions of certain characters. So um, for example, Achilles is always um, swift-footed. Um, the horses are always single, uh, single-footed horses, which means that if you were to look at their footsteps, you would see that their back feet went right where their front feet were. They have perfect form um, in in their running and in, the, and in their um, movement. Um, there's certain standard phrases that apply to people, um, and that standardization of phrase is something that um, has a lot of different reasons and a lot of different implications. But I think Homer is very aware of it, um, and sometimes he foregrounds it, and sometimes he doesn't. I think the idea of Diomedes and Hector being both breakers of horses—that's something he is foregrounding. Um, but you—but um, don't be too quick to make too much of those Homeric epithets. Um, another place where it's foregrounded, since we're talking about them, is um, um, you know the Monty Python routine about bold Sir Robin. Do people know that routine? Yeah. Um, it's a song about Sir Robin, and it's um, um, bold, 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 bold. Brave Sir Robin, and then it's the the great line is, "When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled." Um, and that's that's uh, typical Typically. of it. Um, there's a place where Harris is described like that. So. Um, so, um, brave and blameless Paris um, ran like a coward away. Um, it's actually, I should find it for you. I took a note on it, I think. Um, well, I won't find it right now. Um, oh, it's too bad. It's, it's really funny, and the whole point is um, that, um, oh yeah, it's it's on page 101. Um is that here, the Homeric epithet really is supposed to be foregrounded. This is book three, um, (laughs) book three, line 30, started line 30. But Alexandros, the godlike, when he saw Menelaus showing among the champions, the heart was shaken within him. So Alexandros the godlike, the heart was shaken within him. To avoid death, he shrank back. He shrank into the host of his own companions as a man who has come on a snake in the mountain valley suddenly steps back and the shivers come over his body and he draws back in a way, cheeks seized with a green pallor, so in terror of Atreus' son, godlike Alexandros, <laughs> lost himself again in the host of the haughty Trojans. So, yeah, you're supposed to notice that, that that the Homeric epithet, godlike Alexandros, is like bravely he beat a bold retreat. Um, that is, he really hasn't earned it. It goes with his name, but he hasn't earned it. Okay, two more questions, and then I'm going to rush through some stuff. Yeah. I was
2: just saying say, the Thadals is kind of funny. It says, as one who trips on a snake.
0: Okay, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, thank you. Yeah. I
2: also found, like, <clears throat> when you're reading, that the very, all the rep- Regard, I guess it might also been like a, a device for remembering
0: the poem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's something we'll get to in a minute. But it is it is a device for, for remembering. Um, okay, so um, Hector is saying, I want to be dead when this happens to you. Um, and partly here you get a little bit of psychological motivation for Hector. Why does he behave the way he does? Because he also knows what fate is, and he knows that it that it's the fate of Troy to be destroyed, and for Andromache to be led away in slavery. Um, And what he doesn't want to know, he doesn't want to be alive when this happens. For him, he never wants that to be present. He'll get his wish. He will be dead when that happens. And here is a place where the Iliad is, I think, extremely relevant to any member of its audience because what it's essentially saying is Everything goes. Everything is destroyed. Death comes to all. And um, what you can do is live in the present, which is what Hector is doing now, and reconcile yourself to your own death um, even though you know that it's coming and that disaster is coming. Disaster will always come. And what Hector is describing here in a very specific Um, Situation is nevertheless something that any mortal reader of this poem and yet none of the immortals but any mortal reader of this poem any mortal audience member can apply to themselves so what he says is let the piled earth hide me under before I hear you crying and know by this that they drag you captive again part of the foreshadowing here and I'll just tell you this is there is a question that the last line of the poem now has answered for you. There is a question whether Achilles will allow Hector to be buried or not. Um, That is going to be the last major um, dramatic tension in the poem. What will happen to Hector's body? And it's hugely major. It's not something trivial in this. We've seen over and over again, that when people fall in battle, their companions try to take their bodies um, out of the battle to bring them back to give them decent burial. And sometimes the um, opponents will allow them to do that, and sometimes they won't. Um, It's a huge issue, and and the reason it's already a huge issue is that Homer is setting up the question, what will happen to Hector's body after he's killed? So then he says says this very terrible and grim prognostication. And then this little bit of narrative, very famous um, moment of kind of um, local, um, uh, local event. So speaking, glorious Hector held out his arms to his baby, that is, remember, Astyanax, Um, whom Hector calls Scamandrius, but all the others, Astyanax, lord of the city. So speaking, glorious Hector held out his arms to his baby, who shrank back to his fair girdled nurse's bosom, screaming and frightened at the aspect of his own father, nodding dreadfully as he thought from the peak of the helmet. Then his beloved father laughed out, and his honored mother, and at once, glorious Hector lifted from his head the helmet and laid it, in all its shining, upon the ground. Then, taking up his dear son, he tossed him about in his arms and kissed him. Um, so Hector's plume on his helmet is nodding, as Hector is talking to Andromache, and then he takes his, he holds out his arm to his baby, and the baby screams in terror. And it's just, a, it's just a moment that could be horrible but isn't. He laughs. Oh, he's frightened of my helmet, so he takes it off, and he holds his baby in his arms, and both the father and the mother laugh at that point. And suddenly, from this huge fateful future, Homer has us look at the present moment, at the moment of a father and a mother and a baby, and it's just a moment of sheer, instantaneous, momentary, but real delight. Nothing like that ever happens for the Greeks in this poem. Um, Agamemnon's plume will also be terrifying a little bit later Um, there's a comparison made between Agamemnon's and Hector's but you don't get this domestic moment that goes again to what we were talking about last week which is the extent to which um, the Trojans are at home in this war and therefore they both have more domestic scenes than the Greeks do but they're fighting is more existential, more about saving everything, than the Achaean fighting is, and this is this is a moment where we see that. Let's go forward now to um, the embassy to Achilles, um, and um, let's. Um, this is page two o three, which is book nine, around um, line. 183. Um, And what happens here, and um, I I partly want to look at this scene because we can put a bunch of things together um, here. Um, What happens here is essentially Achilles re enters the poem. Briefly, but he does re enter the poem. So um, Odysseus and Idomeneus and um, Phoenix and Euribates and various other people go to see Achilles. And they basically say, Agamemnon says, you were right, he was wrong. You can have Briseis back. He never had sex with her. You can Plus, you can have all this other stuff beside. Come help us. Um, and in a sense, that would have been what Achilles wanted. That is, Agamemnon is making a huge concession. The king of all the Achaeans is basically saying, um, everything you wanted and more beside. Um, I totally accept that you were right and I was wrong. And so at line 185, the ambassadors um, um, came up beside the shelters and ships of the Myrmidons and they found Achilleus delighting his heart in a lyre. Myrmidons are um, essentially Achilles' people. Um, Anyone know why they have the name Myrmidon? No, it's um, spelled differently. Nice idea. Um, it a- it's actually um, the Greek word for ant. Um, and if you are a biologist and you look at the uh, name for ants, the Latin, the species name or the genus name um, is similar. I can't actually remember what it is now, but it's similar. Um, they they're called ants because um, the mythology or the myth is that all the people were killed and then Zeus decided oh this is terrible and um, brought them back to life. But the way he brought them the way he repopulated the region was to turn all the ants into people. Um, so this is the earliest version of a bug's life. Um, <laughs> but you should think of them as their loyalty to Achilles and the efficiency. Of their, of their fighting and of their murderousness which is going to come up later and which is something that Shakespeare found shocking. Shakespeare tells the story of Achilles' killing of Hector and is not, you know, probably his 33rd best play, um, Troilus and Cressida. Um, Shakespeare was totally against them. Um, Homer isn't, um, but Shakespeare is. So at any rate, there's Achilles with his myrmidons and then this really interesting and surprising moment And they found Achilleus delighting his heart in a lyre, clear-sounding, splendid, and carefully wrought with a bridge of silver upon it, which he won out of the spoils when he ruined Aetion's city. Remember who Aetion is? Yeah. So what does Achilles do? He has a lyre. He's singing, just as Homer is. That is, Homer will be in the original performance of this he is singing this song to a liar. Um, and now it turns out that not only is Achilles the greatest of warriors, but he's a poet who, for whom perhaps the greatest of spoils is the instrument that allows him to sing the poem. I, I guess I should also tell you this. We talked a little bit about meter and quantity early on. Um, the way Greek poetry worked, ancient Greek poetry worked, is what we call meter and what the Latin poets called quantity. That is, arma virum que cano, which you can hear as arma virum que cano. The long syllables are about twice as long as the short ones. Not quite twice as long, but, but about twice as long. Or in English, we do it as stress. Arma virum que cano. Um, in Greek it was actually pitch. Um, and in ancient Greek it was actually pitch. Um, if you know what Swedish sounds like or what Chinese sounds like, those are both pitch languages where words mean something different and stresses, um, work differently depending on the pitch with which you say something. So if you know what a a parody of Swedish sounds like, it rather sounds a little bit like the girl with the dragon tattoo was really very angry. Um, So if you know that that there's that kind of sing-songy style that you can hear in Swedish if it's not a native language of yours, um, that's what ancient Greek was sing-songy in the same way. And what that meant was that just by virtue of something's being poetry, it was musical. Just by virtue of the fact that it's what we would call rhythmical, for the Greeks, it was going up and down in notes also. So that the lyre that you play poetry to is following the language. It's not in, well, so here's an interesting um, linguistic fact. The only intonationless language, spoken language in modern English and in lots of modern languages is in singing because it's only in singing that the music overrides what is standard intonation. No one can speak in a monotone, but if you sing something, the stresses won't be, the, the, the um, cognitive stresses won't be obvious. In Greek, it's very different. In ancient Greek, to say a poem was automatically to be singing it, not because you were trying to sing it, but because that's how the language worked. And so if you played to a lyre, um, it, you were simply um, underlining what you were doing anyhow. So here's Achilles and Homer, both of them with liars both of them singing about the battles that they've been in. And Achilles is pleasuring his heart and singing of men's fame. And then here's Patroclus. As Patroclus was sitting over against him, alone, in silence, watching Iacades and the time he would leave off singing. So Patroclus is waiting for him to stop. But what he's doing is singing men's fame. He, Achilles, is doing something similar to what Homer is doing. And then Achilles sees the ambassadors and he welcomes them. Okay, Point two in this really crucial scene is the ambassadors come. And Achilles' response isn't, get the heck out of here. It's he welcomes the ambassadors and says, welcome. You are my friends who have come and greatly I need you, at line 197, who even to this my anger are dearest of all the Achaeans. So even my anger. Welcomes you. Um, Then what we get is Odysseus and Phoenix talking to Achilles. Now go to, um, hang on a second, Um, yeah, line 250, around line 250. um, And here Odysseus is speaking. And he says, please help us know, at line 250, beforehand, take thought to beat the evil day aside from the Danaans, Dear friend, surely thus your father Pelias advised you that day when he sent you away to Agamemnon from Phithia. Here's what your father said. My child, for the matter of strength, Athena and Hera will give it, if it be their will. But be it yours to hold fast in your bosom the anger of the proud heart. For consideration is better. Keep from the bad complication of quarrel, and all the more for this, the Argives will honor you, both their younger son and their elders. And uh, Achilleus answers this claim, and it's a really important claim, which is that you get more honor. People are angry if they feel they've been dissed. And that's Achilles' complaint, is that Agamemnon has dissed him. And he has a right to be treated better. Um, what Odysseus is saying is people will respect you for swallowing down your anger more than they respect you for the anger itself Um, that's a crucial thing to know that swallowing it down is more important than the anger itself and Achilles agrees that that's true but he still won't do it he knows that it's wrong to be angry. He knows that he's attracting disrespect to himself through his anger. Yeah, but he but still doesn't care.
2: If he went back now, like if he did follow his anger now, when they're offering all these gifts and you know treasures for him, isn't, I feel like in a way he can't go back now or Homer
0: can't let him go back, that would make him sort of him more like greed. I think. That's yeah. not very like, heroic. Yeah, no, that's ex- that's exactly right. That is, if he were to go back then he would be saying that the reason i did this was not so much a question of justice but a question of desire and now it's all okay as long as as long as um you give me what i want but I didn't do this because I wanted stuff. I did this because of the insult. That's exactly right. And that's what he's figuring out at this moment. He didn't know that before, but now he's figuring that out about human motivation, about himself. Yeah?
1: But at the same time, Achilles has a very strong internal motivation to not go, fighting, or go, go back to the fight, because he knows that it's his fate that if he does go back, he'll um, win fame and do a lot of great, well, great by the standards of this, great things but
0: he'll die. Yeah. Um and that's that's I, I but I would want to put that another way. So that's at around line 410 and he explains to um the messengers what his own um feelings are. Um Of possessions, cattle and fat sheep are things to be had for the lifting, he says at line 405, and tripods can be won in the tawny high head of horses, but a man's life cannot come back again. It cannot be lifted nor captured again by force once it has crossed the teeth's barrier. For my mother Thetis, the goddess of the silver feet, tells me I carry two sorts of destiny toward the day of my death, either if I stay here and fight beside the city of the Trojans, my return home is gone, but my glory shall be everlasting. But if I return home to the beloved land of my fathers, the excellence of my glory is gone, but there will be a long life left for me and my end in death will not come to me quickly. And this would be my counsel to others also to sail back home again since no longer shall you find any term set on the sheer city of Iliad. Um So here Achilles is um, thinking about that extraordinary choice which was given to Thetis to begin with. Um, There's a lot of backstory here that we won't talk about. The important thing to notice though is that Achilles is essentially the situation he turns out to be in is that he is going to get glory at Troy and he knows it he doesn't have much—he He's he has a short life ahead of him, not a long one. But even so, even though his life is short, he's wasting time not getting glory by sulking. Um, he's considering going back, and he's also very, very powerful here about the meaning of death in a way that none of the other Achaeans in, and none of the other Trojans have been. Um, This will come up again in the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, Odysseus goes to the underworld and talks to the dead shade of Achilles, um, and they discuss just this issue again. So right now, let's just underline it um, and finish. You now have a week to finish the Iliad, and we have one class to finish it in, which will be interesting. So um, do what you can. Finish it, and we'll do what we can next week. Um, Have a good break.